Well, friends, we are in the sixth of seven parables of our Lord Jesus today. So this series has quickly come and gone. The series title, I've drawn attention to it a number of different times. It's printed in your bulletin. It's kind of long. Mirrors, Hammers, and More Than Morality. And I'm not going to labor the introduction today. If you've not been with us in previous weeks, you could go back and listen to some of that audio regarding some of the things that we've considered about the parables, even by way of introduction. The passage that we're going to be considering today, the parable that we are considering today, is certainly going to function as a mirror, as God's word, God's law always does. And I trust that every single heart in this room will be exposed today, shown for what our hearts in Adam, in the corruption of our flesh, will be shown for what they are. And the parable today, the passage today, is most certainly a hammer. The parable is pointed. It's sharp. It's intense. It's heavy. Pick your descriptor. It's all of that. May God give us grace. And as we prayed and asked, may he give us soft hearts that would receive his word. So here are a few words of exhortation from me to you. And with myself in mind as I too sit under the word in this time. Exhortations for us. One, listen for yourself, not someone else. Listen for yourself, not someone else. Two, do not listen today with an eye toward justifying yourself. Three, Listen with compassion toward your brothers and sisters who are, like you, miserable offenders. So with those three exhortations to us all, may God give us everything that our faith and our love might lack. Amen? Amen. The parable of the unforgiving servant today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 18. Our text today will be verses 21 to 35 of the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. As you're turning there, a very brief word on context. Beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Jesus teaches on church discipline. Many are familiar with this passage. If your brother sins against you, go to him, tell him his fault between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he won't listen to you, take one or two others with you and bring his fault before him. Implied, if he listens, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, then take it to the church, the assembly. Implication, if he listens to the assembly, you have won, you have gained your brother. But if he refuses to listen even to the assembly, then treat this person as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus has just said these things. Keep in mind, the goal of going to the offender each time is what? Restoration. Then in verses 19 and 20, 
Jesus says some very strong things about how God the Father and himself, God the Son, are with the church in this whole thing. Seeking repentance, practicing discipline if necessary. The Lord is with us. I mean, that's the context into which that famous verse where two or three are gathered in my name occurs. So these are a big deal. That's the context for this parable. So let's keep that in mind as I read it for us now. You can put your eyes on God's word. You will be helped to follow along throughout the time. This is the word of God, beginning in Matthew 18, in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. Typically, we preach through books of the Bible here. And one of the good things about that is that we don't skip passages. But today, even though this is a topically arranged series of expositions of parables, today is one of those passages that is a hard text. It's pointed. It is good that we would look at it and seek to understand it, to see God's law and God's gospel in these words this morning. My plan is simple. It's very similar to the outline from last week. This will serve us well. We're going to consider again, first of all, the occasion for the parable, because that always matters. Jesus doesn't tell these parables in a vacuum. The gospel writers record it the way they do on purpose by the inspiration of the Spirit. So first part, we're going to think about the occasion. 
Secondly, we're going to look at the parable, as we've done a number of times in this series. We're just going to make our way through it. I'm going to talk about it, try to explain it. We're going to unpack it somewhat. And then I've got several points after that of further explanation, application, reflection. So that's the plan. So let's begin, first of all, with the occasion. We're going to find this in verses 21 and 22. So if you put your eyes on verse 21, keep in mind, Jesus has just talked about sin, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration in the church. And then Peter comes to Jesus and says something, asks a question, kind of a series of them. He says to Jesus, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I'm reading it that way on purpose. Because there was a fairly common teaching of rabbis in this day that a person only needed to forgive an offender three times. Upon the fourth offense, the offender was not forgiven. So here, Peter, in his mind, from his perspective, is being very gracious. He's going above and beyond what you would typically have heard in the synagogue by saying, how many times, Jesus, will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven? We can sympathize with Peter's thinking, can we not? We can. We can't just keep forgiving, right? I mean, there's got to be a limit to this, forgiveness. Because, I mean, people will be disingenuous, they'll abuse it, will they not? I mean, at some point, the hammer's got to drop. We understand. Verse 22, Jesus responds. As he typically does, he explodes categories. I say this regularly. When you read and you, you consider the words of our Savior, just marvel at him and the way that he speaks. He shifts paradigms so easily. He says something shocking. He says, I don't say to you seven times but 70 times 7. Now translators differ on how to render that. Some render it 77. Some render it 70 times 7. In short, it matters not. The point of this is not that Peter got the number wrong and that Jesus offers a better number. As though at the 491st offense or the 78th offense, Forgiveness is no longer the order of the day. Jesus is simply playing off the number Peter offered. And of course the number seven has all kinds of things biblically going on with it in terms of its scope, completeness, etc. The point that Christ is making to Peter is you do not stop forgiving. Now we're going to consider this more but let's go ahead and say it now. We are to forgive others when they sin against us because God in Christ has forgiven us. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And while we're here, I'm kind of sorry, kind of not, you know me. 
to blow up your notions of your personal righteousness. Because God forgave you, he forgave me, more than 490 times yesterday. Even as Christians, we are uncomfortable with limitless forgiveness, are we not? We get Peter's question, and we are taken aback by Jesus' response. But consider the one who's talking to Peter. He is the one who's going to take on the sin of the world. He is the one who is going to become sin Though he never sinned or knew sin, he's going to become sin for us. He is the one who's going to pay for the sin of his people in full. All of it. Once and for all time. And so when you ask him, hey bro, how far do we need to go with forgiveness? His answer is really far. Jesus, in response to Peter's question, says there ought to be no limit to forgiving. And then he tells a parable to drive it home. So let's look at it. So we've now come from the occasion into the parable. Verse 23. He begins, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared... When you get those words, again, remember, as we've thought about so many times in this series, Jesus is teaching us about how the kingdom of heaven works. We've thought about this a lot. It doesn't work like we think it would. It doesn't work like we think it should. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, with these servants, perhaps these were people who had been entrusted with the king's assets to manage, and he's asking them to settle. Or perhaps this is a situation where they're being taxed for the use of land in the kingdom. Either way, the king's servants owe him money. Verse 24. A servant is brought to the king who owes him 10,000 talents. Now this is an obscene amount of money. This is roughly 200,000 times what a laborer would have earned in a year. So Jesus uses this amount on purpose. There is no way, no matter what this servant does, that he can realistically pay this back. It's a debt he could never afford. Verse 25, the servant can't pay. That's not a shocker. And so the king, his master, orders that this servant and his family be sold and that money be given as payment. Now, it's not that this payment would settle the debt. It's punishment. You get that. Verse 26. The servant falls to his knees, perhaps is prostrate before the master, before the king. And he begs for patience. He says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. He says, give me time and I'll make it right. And again, keep in mind, he can't. He can't. Then verse 27. The king, the master. He does a whole lot more 
then give this servant time so that he can try to repay the debt. He has compassion on him. He releases him and he forgives the debt. The servant is free. Free. He doesn't owe the king anything. This is shocking mercy. Jesus knows what he's doing. Right? Verse 28. The servant goes out. This man who'd just been forgiven this unfathomable debt that he could never pay back. Shown this kind of shocking mercy. And he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him money. Now the word found is ambiguous. It's not that he necessarily went out looking for his debtor. It may be that they just ran into each other. Either way, what goes down is not good. The other servant, we're told, owes this servant, the one who'd been forgiven the huge debt, owes him some money. Now, it's a hundred denarii. Not an insignificant sum of money. This would have been about three months' wages for a laborer. So you can think about that. How much money you would make, for example, three months on the job. It's not a small chunk of change. It's something. But it is a drop in the bucket compared to the debt that the servant had been forgiven. The servant seizes his debtor and begins to choke him. He says, pay what you owe. The self-righteousness is off the charts. Verse 29. The servant's debtor does what the other servant had done before the master. He falls to his knees and pleads. Using almost the exact same words. Same song, different verse. Right? Be patient with me. And I'll pay you, he says. Verse 30. The servant, the creditor, right, refuses. And he won't even do the moderately generous thing of giving the guy more time to pay. He's already choked him out and now he has him thrown in jail. Verse 31. This is an indictment, a serious indictment here. The other servants, they all see what has gone down and they are greatly upset. They look at it and see how wrong it is. They're like, this is not okay. And so they go and tell the master. And then in verses 32 to 35, we're going to get the real climactic moment, the drop of the hammer, the point of the parable. When the master hears what's gone down, he summons the servant and he lays into him. He says, you wicked servant. You're evil, he says. I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The answer is obviously, rhetorically, yes. The master then delivers this wicked servant over to the jailers, 
quite literally, I mean, this is torturers. So you get the image of torment. And then in verse 35, Jesus drops the hammer and the microphone. Right? And he says that God will likewise, his heavenly Father will likewise punish those who do not forgive from the heart. If God has forgiven us an unfathomable debt of sin against him on account of Christ, how could we ever hold the sin of others against us over their heads. You get the point. So that brings us now to our time of further explanation, reflection, and application. I have five points here. Don't let that alarm you. Several of them are brief. I don't often do super brief points, but we're going to trust the Lord that these things, even in their succinctness, will hit. The second point is long, just to let you know. Number one, first point in this latter portion of the message. Unforgiveness is contrary to the gospel, period. Unforgiveness is contrary to the gospel. And I mean unforgiveness amongst us. In the church, unforgiveness amongst us in our relationships. So let me anticipate an objection. It's a sincere one. And it is an objection that is not at all lost on me or the elders of this congregation. Many would say, Brother, I hear you. And at the same time, you do not know what he's done to me. You do not know what she has put me through. Bro, there are some things that are just impossible to forgive. Man, there are just some things that go so far beyond the pale that they can't be forgiven. It's an objection. Beloved, Scripture does not give us that option. Will it be hard to forgive? Yeah. Will it be brutally hard sometimes? Yeah. Will it be insanely painful sometimes? Yes. Yet this is the word that Christ speaks. The debt of sin that we owe to God so far outstrips the debt that others owe us and God has forgiven us. So we are to forgive those who sin against us. Number two. Having said that unforgiveness is contrary to the gospel. Number two. I've just got a very general header here. Law and gospel considerations. Law and gospel considerations. This one's longer. You settle in. Jesus' language from verse 35 is strong. My Father will hold your sin against you and will hand you over into torment and judgment if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. 
Big questions. Legit questions you should be asking as a person who's studying the scriptures and wants to understand them. Is Jesus saying that we acquire God's forgiveness by forgiving other people? Is that what he's saying? That we acquire God's forgiveness by forgiving other people? I see a lot of people shaking their head no. We're on the same page. We are justified, declared righteous by God. We're forgiven of our sins on account of the work of Jesus Christ alone. Grounded in the grace of God alone, received by faith alone. Amen. Is Jesus saying that our forgiving of others is meritorious some way in God's sight? No. Is Jesus saying that on the basis of our forgiving others, we might escape judgment? No. At the same time, does this parable indict every single one of us? Yes. Yes. Is every heart in this room laid bare? The word of God is like a double-edged sword, right? It cuts, lays us open. It shows and exposes us for what we are. So what is Jesus pointing out? What's he doing? This is important. He is pointing out that if you want to go around living a transactional life, tit for tat, quid pro quo, that is not how the kingdom of heaven works. Transactional quid pro quo is not what the gospel is. The unforgiving servant in the parable had not correctly understood the magnitude of his debt. That's clear. The unforgiving servant had not correctly received, really received, the mercy of the king. The way he treats his fellow servant makes that clear. He's demanding that justice be meted out to his neighbor, yet expecting, feeling entitled to forgiveness for himself. All of that demonstrates that he thought he deserved the mercy he got. Brief observation here. I trust we all feel the weight of this. The posture, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, the posture of the unforgiving servant, from everything we can tell that's written in this parable, is not a posture of a person who knows that he should forgive his brother, but is just having a hard time doing that. This is not one of those situations where, like, I know that I need to forgive. I'm, just, I'm hurting, and it's painful, and I need grace. Will you pray for me? This is not one of those, like, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak moments. This man goes and chokes a dude out and has him thrown in jail. This is the depiction of a person who is taking vengeance into his own hands and who is exacting punishment. It's brazened. 
It's unforgiveness turned up to an 11. In the parable too, take note, the other servants, they see it. They see it. And they know it's really bad. So in other words, this is the kind of brazen unforgiveness that's obvious to everyone. All right. I'm going to say this slowly and soberly. Listen carefully. If you are a person who goes around not forgiving anyone, understanding yourself to deserve mercy, but extending it to nobody, that is a symptom of unbelief and is a dead giveaway that you are living under the law and not grace. I'm going to repeat that. If you are a person who goes around not forgiving anyone, understanding yourself to deserve mercy but extending it to nobody, that is a symptom of unbelief and is a dead giveaway that you are living under the law, not the grace of Christ. You are still viewing this thing as a transaction. You're trading with law capital. And that's damning. Consider other words of our Lord. Matthew 7, 2 reads this way. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Or consider the words of Paul. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Romans 2, 1 to 3. If we persist, beloved, friends, hear me. If we persist in wanting transactional, quid pro quo dealings with others, we subject ourselves to a very hard and severe law. And we will find God to be as stern with us as we are our neighbors. That is what Christ is depicting and teaching in this parable. He shows us, hear me, he shows us what will become of us if God were to treat us with severity and if God chose to demand of us what we owe him. So how could we treat others with severity? How could we demand from others what they owe us? All right, I want to speak a few words to you sitting here. Two different categories of people in my mind right now. First, to the person who's sitting here today and you're thinking, like, my gosh, I, I have always thought about the Christian life as a transaction. The word to you is, oh sinner, consider God's law. See the magnitude of the debt that you owe him. 
You flat out could never afford this. Do not make the critical error of thinking that you are not that bad. Many may be familiar with the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. You may know it. The Ark of the Covenant is being transported on a cart. You know that the Lord had told people not to touch it. The oxen pulling the cart stumble. Uzzah, who is a friend and servant of King David, reaches out with his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. Dead on the spot. It's a shocking story. It offends a lot of our sensibilities. But R.C. Sproul, in his wonderful book, The Holiness of God, makes the observation that Uzzah's fundamental error in that moment was assuming that his hand was less defiled than the dirt. We should see ourselves that way in light of God's holy and perfect law. So if you're here and you've always thought of the Christian life as a transaction, consider the law and then despair of yourself. Despair of your righteousness. I know that is a very countercultural, not great thing to say in our day. Despair of yourself and your goodness. You don't have it. And look to Christ who paid your debt, who bore the justice and the wrath of God in the place of sinners so that sinners might go free. Free. No strings attached. Free. And those who have received that grace from God, those who have received that forgiveness, those who have received the very righteousness of Christ by faith, and know that they are in a position of abject need, those people, that grace received by faith produces forgiveness in a person. We do not forgive in order to be justified. We forgive because we have been justified. On account of sheer grace and on account of Christ. So that's one group of people. To another group of people who may be sitting here today, to every dear saint who is convicted, convicted thinking, I am an unforgiving jerk. Take heart. Christ made atonement and made satisfaction for all of our sin, including our unforgiveness. And he, as our representative, perfectly forgave those who sinned against him. The words are often quoted, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. No one has ever been wronged like that. Ever. No one has ever suffered unjustly like that. And his word in that moment is, forgive them. He is the one who represents you. Confess your sin. If you're convicted this morning, confess your sin, lament it, grieve it, and trust Christ. Accept, receive, and rest in him for justification, for your sanctification, and for your eternal life.
That's number two, law and gospel considerations. Number three, these next will be brief. Number three, we're going to reflect and think about forgiveness amongst brothers and sisters. So this is regarding forgiveness amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church. Keep the following in mind. When we forgive each other in Christ, we are saying this effectively. If I wrong you, I sin against you, you confront me or I'm convicted either way and I ask for forgiveness and you forgive me. What the person, the forgiver is saying to the one who has wronged them is that this thing no longer exists between you and me in terms of a record of wrongs. This thing doesn't exist between you and me in terms of a record of wrongs. I'm not going to hold it over you. And we can say that. Here's the huge thing in the church. We can say that because that thing, that offense committed, no longer exists between that person and God either because Jesus has handled it. So in light of that, our posture should be this, with each other. The sin committed against me, if I'm speaking to someone who's wronged me, the sin committed against me no longer exists between you and God because of Christ. And because I am in Christ, I too have forgiveness to extend to you. Our posture should also be this. The Father has forgiven me an incalculable debt. He does not hold my sin against me because of Christ. So if I am in him, how can I hold your sin over you? Now, somebody may be thinking, okay, well, brother, that makes sense in the church because Christ has atoned for the sin of his people. What about with a non-believer? We're still to forgive because we have been forgiven such a large debt of our own sin in Christ that offenses committed against us are that drop in the bucket. While they may be significant, they pale in comparison to our offenses against a holy God. And we trust that if a person remains unrepentant, then God will deal with that. And we leave it to him. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. We are not to seek it ourselves. That's number three. Number four. This is on forgiveness in relationships. So this is more at just an interpersonal level. Forgiveness in relationships. Forgiving someone is to set their conscience free. To set their conscience free from a record of their wrong and to set their conscience free from guilt. Now, God has done this for us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace to you. Grace, because you're a sinner. Peace, because your conscience is troubled. He has set us free. He has said to us in Christ Jesus, this, your sin, your corruption, all your evil deeds, all your evil thoughts, all your evil desires, all the ways you have failed to keep my law, all of that is no longer between you and me. You are forgiven. 
He is the one who blots out our transgressions for his own sake. And he will not remember our sins. We're to forgive one another. Here are some pastoral words. So this is not Bible. This is me as your brother and pastor talking with us. These things are wisdom, and I think they matter or I wouldn't be saying them. But you do with this what you will. Important. When you sin against someone and it's brought to your attention, or you sin against someone and you are convicted of it, ask for forgiveness. Say the words, please forgive me. Those words are meaningful. I'm sorry is good. I'm sorry, please forgive me is better. Second thing, really important. When you are sinned against and the offender says to you, please forgive me, say to them, I forgive you. Don't just respond like, oh, it's all right. Or, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, it's okay. Because in reality, it probably is a big deal. And you're just trying to avoid a difficult and awkward situation. You're going to say it's okay right now and you're going to go home and be wrecked about it for the next six months, right? We know how we are. But alongside that, it's important to say to someone who asks you to forgive them, to say, I forgive you, because in those words, we are setting that person's conscience free. If you don't say, I forgive you, I would suggest it doesn't have the same effect. So those are just some pastoral thoughts for us. Number five. This is a broader application for us as a congregation. And here it is. We are to assure our brothers and sisters of forgiveness for committing any kind of offense when they, when they repent. Let me say that again. We are to assure our brothers and sisters of forgiveness for committing any kind of offense when they repent. In other words, we ought not withhold forgiveness from repentant sinners. God help us if we do. Christ in this passage is exhorting us to compassion toward our brothers and sisters. John Calvin in his commentary writes that Jesus desires that by our compassion we shall raise up those who have fallen. So this is really important. We all have a tendency to be severe and exacting toward other people. This can be especially true in a church where doctrine and the Christian life are taken seriously. Beloved, it is the design of Satan, not God, that we would ever, under the pretense of seriousness, withhold forgiveness and pardon from a person who says, I know I have sinned, I know that I'm wrong, have mercy, and I need forgiveness. It is not God's design that we would hold forgiveness from that person. That kind of withholding of forgiveness drives poor and needy sinners to despair. There is also in the church 
a tendency to forgive sinners who repent and then effectively put them on some kind of probation. You're forgiven, but we're going to keep a close eye on you as though we're just kind of waiting for that misstep that will prove that your repentance wasn't genuine. Calvin also warns very strongly against that. Listen to these words. Having warned against that kind of sort of probationary forgiveness, he says this, quote, For we must observe the design of our Lord himself, that we ought by our gentleness to assist those who have fallen to rise again. So he reiterates that. Then he says this, And certainly we ought to imitate the goodness of our Heavenly Father, who meets sinners at a distance to invite them to salvation. Besides, as repentance is a wonderful work of the Spirit, and as the creation of the new man, if we despise it, we offer an insult to God himself. Close quote. May we never withhold forgiveness here. May we never withhold forgiveness from repentant sinners here. May we never drive such poor and needy sinners to despair. May we never despise repentance, which is a work of the Spirit of God. And now as a conclusion... How are we going to land the plane today? Having considered this text, I want to encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus says to us, you are to be unending in your forgiveness toward your brothers when they repent. Dear Christian, know that God is most certainly unending in his forgiveness toward you. The forgiveness of God is not based upon our sincere efforts to repay what we owe. It is based on God who is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It is based on God who established a covenant in Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Our forgiveness is based on God, who does not deal with us according to our sin. It is based on God, who has compassion for us. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. 
He remembers that we are dust. Praise be to his name. Beloved, we are great sinners. But Christ is a greater Savior. There is more, we've sung this today, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. When we are troubled by our sin in those moments, we must believe Christ and not Satan. Because when our consciences are troubled, Satan's M.O. is to present Christ to that afflicted soul as a very severe judge armed with justice, not grace. In the heart of Christ, beloved, reside perfect mercy and compassion. He is our great high priest who partook of flesh and blood and died so that we might not have to live in bondage to the fear of death and in bondage to the devil. He is our great high priest who appeared in the holy places, covered in his own blood in order to secure our eternal redemption. He is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens and appears at the throne of God. And who does he appear there for? For the righteous? No. He appears only for sinners. He is the one who died for his enemies. Will he then refuse those who desire to be with him and who are grieved at the thought of offending him? No, he will not. We may be weak. We may be poor. We may be needy. But we are his. And he will love and cherish and keep us until he has brought judgment to victory. And it's in his name that we will now pray.